ourselves uh, exploring the book of Judges, and uh, we find ourselves today in, in chapter 4. Um, we'll be looking uh, at the end of the chapter, starting with verse 17, but uh, so you might want to turn there in preparation for that. <clears throat> Again, a type of review. Um, we've been using a template to look at the book of Judges. We, we use this template to filter through uh, what's going on in the book. And that template would be God's commands or promises are stated or given, or sometimes they're implied. And then we see man's response, either he's obedient or he's disobedient. And then we see God's evaluation. Either he will bless man or he will judge man based on uh, how obedient he was. And so up to this point, in last lesson, we saw that God had commanded Barak to take troops out and to conquer the uh, uh, tribe of Canaan or the uh, armies of Canaan. And he did this through his uh, uh, prophetess, Deborah. And she said, go forth and do this. God has given them into your hands. And Barak hesitated, and uh, his faith uh, weakened. And he says, I'll go if you go. And uh, so she says, I will. And then God judged that uh, action. And uh, Deborah said that uh, if I go, then the uh, victory uh, of the defeat of Canaan will be uh, uh, given to a woman. You will not get this uh, victory. So we see that template uh, repeated over and over again. But one thing is for sure, last week we saw that it wasn't Barak who defeated the Canaanites. It was God. God went before the army. God uh, won the victory, and it was God's doing um, because, again, we went over that 10,000 men was not very, a very big army. Uh, they were not well equipped. Uh, they were not warriors. Um, so the only way they were going to defeat this professional army is that God would go out before them uh, and defeat them. So it was uh, Barak's purpose or job to lead the human army. God led the spiritual army uh, in advance of him. And um, this kind of a, a picture of, of Revelation 19:11 through 16, where we see the greater Barak, Jesus Christ, leading his army to victory over all the evil of the world. <clears throat> this time, uh, when Deborah said it's time to go and fight, uh, Barak responded to the word. Uh, with unmixed faith this time, and every single soldier of the enemy's army was slain. A total victory. And again, we have to give God credit. Uh, it was his doing. Uh, again, this is a foreshadowing um, of the final victory of Christ and his saints over all the enemies. Uh, this battle took place uh, on the plains of uh, Migado, 
Um, and many battles have been fought on that plane, but uh, we also know that uh, the final battle uh, of Armageddon, or Armageddon uh, will be fought uh, in that area as well. So we see here that the Lord destroyed Sisera's army, and uh, we're not told how at this point in time how that was done. If you look further into Judges uh, chapter 5, we see that uh, God sent a rainstorm, and uh, uh, that storm produced a muddy plain in which they were going to do battle on, and that mud uh, slowed down those 900 chariots of iron, uh, slowed them right down to a halt. Uh, and uh, man's concept of power with the chariot uh, was nothing compared to the thunderstorms or the rains that God brought to uh, hold them up. So uh, here the focus is simply on the fact that God can stop chariots anytime he wants. Uh, we saw that uh, this was a fear back in chapter 1, but uh, we see that God is not bothered by that. And now <clears throat> uh, the general Sisera is, is off on foot. He's off his chariot, so things are a little bit more equal because, of course, Barak was on foot, and they're pursuing him. So we're going to start with uh, verse 17 of uh, chapter 4. Now Sisera's fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Canaanite. For there was peace between Jabin and the king of Hazor and the house of Heber, the Canaanite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug, or some of you may have blanket there. And it is said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a container of milk and gave him a drink, and then she covered him. And he said to her, stand in the doorway of the tent. And it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here that you shall say no? But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and placed a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And he went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. Behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with a tent peg in his temple. Susira came to the tents of Heber and went to the tent that housed Heber's wife, Jael. <clears throat> now Heber was at peace with 
uh, Jabin, the king. And so there must have been some kind of a, a treaty between them or some kind of agreement with them. And uh, Jael broke that treaty or agreement uh, when she killed uh, Sarah. And when Jael slew, slew, um, slew or killed Sisera, she violated that treaty and acted in disobedience to her husband. Now, Sisera probably would not normally approach uh, a woman's tent. Um, back in those days, um, the thought was that there is a parallel between a person's house and the human body. And for a man to enter a woman's tent uh, was looked upon the same thing as adultery. <clears throat> so notice in uh, Scripture it says she went out to meet him. And uh, invited him in. And so, in effect, what she was saying was that under the extraordinary circumstances, her husband would understand why she was giving refuge to another man in her tent. And these normal social conventions would not apply in the situation. Cicero was thirsty, and he asked for water. She gave him milk, or in Judges 5.25, it seemed to indicate that it might have been more like a, a buttermilk or a, a yogurt. Um, there was no refrigeration, so it was going to be warm. Um, and <clears throat> this was probably done uh, for a reason. If you know the old saying, if you can't sleep, you go down to the kitchen and you do what? Get a glass of warm milk. And uh, so this would probably aid in his sleeping better than uh, water would. So she may have had some uh, uh, method to her madness here. Um, <clears throat> so her deception was very kind. Um, Come in and fear not. And he, he uh, went in and, and took part of her kindness. And in fact, she was so convincing that he asked for another favor, that she would stand at the door and watch um, for anybody to come who might be looking for him. So in effect, he was asking her to be a guardian over him. Once <clears throat> Cicero was sound asleep, then J.L. drove the tent peg. Um, I think her nerves and her moral courage was given to her uh, through her faith to accomplish this task. Now, <clears throat> it was the Bedouin women's job to set up tents. In fact, the Bedouin women did most of the manual labor in their culture. And so uh, she probably had had quite a bit of experience uh, pounding tent pegs. Uh, over the years, and she certainly would have had the strength and the skill uh, to drive this tent peg uh, home uh, through the through the head of um, Susira. Again, we see a, a foreshadowing. We see a, 
uh, a, a type here taking place. We see that Christ uh, has crushed Satan's head de- uh, upon the cross of Calvary. Uh, he found victory there. And the promise is that we too shall crush Satan's head uh, in union with Christ. Romans 16.20 says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So it's a foreshadowing of of, uh, bigger and greater things that uh, are to come with a victory at the cross. Barak was pursuing Sisera, (laughs) intending to kill him. And then... J.L. beckoned him in to come and see her work. And Barak stood there looking at what she had done and realized that he had witnessed the fulfillment of Deborah's prophecy. That J.L., a woman, has been given the honor of defeating the enemy. From my reading, from my studying, quite a few of the commentators... Um, I thought were um, cruel or, or they weren't very flattering uh, with J.L. They, they wrote some uh, negative things about her. And sometimes I think they were just looking to find something to uh, pick at and then write about it. But uh, anyhow, <clears throat> they took some criticism uh, to her, and um, I think this is a good opportunity for us to maybe explore some biblical concepts as we look at these criticisms and may find answers to what they were saying or accusing her of. The accusations start with that she was disobedient to her husband in breaking uh, this treaty with Jabin. And then they said that actively going out of her way to deceive Sisyrus was wrong. Lying to Sisera, saying, fear not, when he had, in fact, much to fear, was another criticism. Violating the laws and the rules of hospitality. Hospitality was a an important part of this culture. And then finally, they accuse her of murder. So that's what men have accused her of. That's what men have against her. However, I think it's more important to see what God has said about her and her actions. Um, In Judges 5, 24 through 27... Uh, God evaluates her actions. But uh, the beginning of that, uh, those verses, it says this, Most blessed of women is J.L. This language is uh, very similar to what was mentioned with the Virgin Mary in Luke 1.28. Blessed are you among women. I think the parallel is certainly important here and indicates rather high evaluation of J.L. on God's part. But let's take a look at some of these criticisms and see what we might come up with. 
First, she's charged with disobeying her husband. Is it ever right for a wife to disobey her husband? Well, I think certainly on some occasions for a Christian woman uh, must put God before her own husband, before her own family, and before her own self. The point is clearly made by Jesus in Matthew 10, 34-37 and Luke 14, 26. When he basically was saying you, you, the cost of following me is that you, need to, you will hate your uh, husband, you'll hate your children, you'll hate your mother and father. And of course we, we looked at that a few months ago and we determined that the term hate here is more like saying you must love me more and your hate, your love for your uh, mother and father, your love for your kids or your husband will look more like hate uh, when you compare it to the love you have for me. So God's love is more important uh, than the dearest kin for the kingdom's sake. The background of this command is Exodus 32:26-29 and Deuteronomy 33, 8-9. Here we see the people had rebelled against God and he called for faithful men to execute his judgment. And the Levites stepped forward to do so and we are told that they did not spare even the members of their own families. They were so consumed uh, with God's holiness and justice from all this we can conclude that when a husband becomes an enemy of God the wife must side with God and become an enemy of her husband for the most part she will continue to love her husband and submit to him but in a crisis such as J.L. faced here she must side with God Any thoughts or comments, questions? Well, again, he wasn't part of the, the, the Israelite nation. He had made treaty or peace with the uh, Jabin. Yeah. Javen's general here. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. We'll, 
Well, yeah, we'll touch on that a little bit later. That's a good point to bring up. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Slightly used, yeah. <laughs> uh, the sec second thing that they uh, accused her of or criticized her of was act of deception. And I'm going to go back to uh, Rahab here with the Battle of Jericho. Uh, remember that Rahab lied to the men of Jericho uh, when they came to her door. Now, Rahab did not go out of her way to deceive the men of Jericho. Uh, you might say it was more of a passive deception. She did not go out and seek them and then lie to them. We must note, however, that Rahab's action did not take place in a time of open war. The Battle of Jericho hadn't started yet. It did not take place on a battlefield the way J.L.'s did. It was an open killing battlefield that J.L. was involved in. And kind of like what Cliff just mentioned, she had become a member of God's army, so to speak. And she was using a military tactic of deception of the enemy. Uh, scripture commends her for it. Uh, deception is often used as a battleground to lure the enemy within the range of a hidden force. So uh, the charge of deception involved in, in this time in a military uh, battlefield would probably be uh, something acceptable under the circumstances. The third charge that J.L. faced was uh, that of lying. I found this one a little difficult to deal with. <clears throat> um, some commentators think that it was all right to conceal the truth, but not verbally lie about something through spoken word. Uh, it's okay if you don't tell the whole truth but don't lie verbally. I think this dis distinction is kind of hard to justify because deception is deception, whether it's verbal or nonverbal. But there's some examples in Scripture here that um, I have no complete explanation for, but they're in Scripture, so I'll touch base on them. 1 Kings 22, 19 through 23, God permitted a deceiving spirit to lie to Ahab to lure him into his doom. 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 2, God permitted Samuel to lie, uh, saying he was going to go up to make an offer, offering. Uh, so 
uh, Saul wouldn't be suspicious and, and try to kill him. Um, again, we see approval of Rahab's lie in James 2.25. Rahab's true faith was shown by her good works. It says, quote, when she received the messengers and set them out by another way, end of quote. She sent them out by another way. Uh, a way other than what? Well, Rahab sent the spies out by another way other than the ones that she told the men of Jericho that uh, she was sending them. So she's commended for her actions. Um, again, kind of like Cliff said, uh, Rahab had changed sides in this war. Uh, she became uh, a member of God's army fighting against uh, sinful humanity. And you might say, in a time of active hostility, she deceived the enemy by her words. The following women used lying to deceive tyrants bent on evil. We see Sarah in Genesis 12 with Pharaoh and Genesis 20 with Abimelech. Um, there was lying involved there. Rebecca used the same lie in Genesis 26 and 27. And we see the Hebrew uh, midwives lying to protect um, the young male uh, Israelites uh, in Exodus 1. And then we have Jael. Any thoughts or comments about this criticism? God used it. Mm -hmm. We see this happening all the time where enemies of God is being used by God uh, to complete his plan, his thought, his actions. I know. It, 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 
that's the key, I think, right there. That we have to just understand who God is and what he's about and how he uses um, people to uh, complete his, his plan and his will. Uh, the next criticism was that jail was charged with violating the laws of conventions of hospitality. Hospitality was very important in Scripture, and we're told uh, in the New Testament. And, and of course, in the Middle East uh, culture, um, hospitality is very important. Um, however, um, it's not normal that we would uh, murder our guests if we invite them into the tent, but... Uh, the New Testament, however, does say this in 2 John 9.10, uh, that we're not to show hospitality to the enemies of God. It says, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And whoever continues in the teaching of has both Father and Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. God comes first, I think. It's what they're saying here. Hospitality would come second. And finally, uh, J.L. is charged, uh, criticized for committing murder. Um, my reply is simply to point out that killing in wartime or on a battlefield is not murder. Uh, Vigilante-style lynching assassinations and murders are not permitted in the Bible. Killing such as Ehud and Jael I think is permissible in time of a just war but not on a vigilante scale. So that's I think answers to some of the criticisms that were brought up here. Any final thoughts before we move on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. All right, verse 23. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. And the land of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had cut off Jabin, Jab, the king of Canaan. Again, I, I reemphasize the fact that it was God who did the work. God executed his plan and brought it about, and he brought about a victory. So we must always give him credit, for he is the deliverer of the song. It took a while. Uh, Jabin and his culture were destroyed 
but uh, they continue to live on uh, within uh, the promised land. I think what we're seeing here uh, in these last couple of verses is what was going to happen in the future. Uh, it took a while for them to uh, be wiped out of, the, of that culture. Zechariah 14.21 points to the time when all Canaanites will finally be gone from the land uh, and the house of God. Well, that brings us to chapter 5, and we begin the song of Deborah. We've been referring to this uh, in chapter 4 to kind of give us a better understanding of what's going on. So now we're going to take a look at the song itself. Um, many scholars have often divided the song of Deborah into three stanzas. Um, but a lot of them don't agree as to where that, those stanzas should break, uh, where the division should occur. I've seen as many as five stanzas broken up here dealing with this. But I think we're going to try to keep it simple. Um, so these are the three stanzas, the way I, I think we are going to break it down and look at it for our purposes. Uh, verses 2 through 11 is the introduction or, of the situation that uh, Deborah and Barak found themselves in. Uh, verses 12 through 22, the second stanza uh, is about the hosts of the Lord and the battle that took place. And then stanza three would be 23 through 31, the aftermath of the battle. As we read through the uh, song, you will note uh, the use of Hebrew parallelism. We've talked about this in uh, various lessons, and, and pastors talked about it a little bit, in the, in, in Brother Cliff, when he was going through some of the poetry. Uh, shared this with us. Uh, usually Hebrew poetry, um, something is said two times. Uh, this is in order for uh, uh, two, test, two witnesses to the testimony of God. Uh, and it's also a, a, worship, a worship tool where one line is said and the next line is repeated. Uh, when it's used as part of a worship service, the leader says the first phrase, speaking the word of the Lord as his representative, and the congregation responds with the second phrase, uh, responding as God's people. So for the most part, the phrases in the uh, Song of Deborah are very short, and they kind of create a rhythm uh, and an enthusiasm when they are read aloud. Um, it was thought that it was written this way um, for easier memorization uh, among the people. Um, and uh, when you're feed, watering your camels or your goats or your sheep, uh, like a lot of office people standing around the water cooler, uh, they would be singing the Song of Solomon, remembering the great deeds that God uh, had accomplished. Verse 1, it says, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoman, uh, sang on that day, saying, the verb, 
Well, the verb sang here in this first verse is uh, feminine singular. This would kind of indicate uh, that it was uh, Deborah who wrote and sang the song. Uh, perhaps uh, Barak accompanied her on a musical instrument. Remember, he's a Levite. And if you look at First Chronicles 23 through 30, 23 through 3 through 5, one of the jobs of the Levitical priests was to praise God with instruments. So this is maybe something that he did uh, to accompany her. The song is um, authored by uh, Deborah the prophetess. And since it's divinely inspired, it is also God's own words of evaluation. So God is evaluating what took place through this song which he gave to Deborah. The song of uh, Deborah may sound uh, uh, gory to some of the ears who are not prepared to hear it. Uh, Deborah delights in describing the victory over her Lord's enemies and their total destruction. One of the <coughs> things that you could dig out of this is that uh, a, a sense of humor uh, is displayed um, through redemptive history here. Uh, for instance, uh, Baal was supposed to be the god of the storm, but it turns out that the Lord is the true ruler of the storm. God is the true ruler. And he uses a storm, remember the mud in the fields, to destroy Baal's followers. And he did it under the leadership of a man whose name is Lightning Bolt. So you see the connectivity of a sense of humor that might be involved here. Uh, <clears throat> Stanza one. This section begins with Deborah's praising the Lord because the people were willing to volunteer and fight. Uh, this can be seen as a confirmation of her own ministry that uh, she was called by God. And uh, remember, if her prophecies were not true, she would have been uh, given the death penalty. So this was kind of a confirmation that the people volunteered to come out and support her ministry. She next addresses the kings of the nations, informing them that the Lord of the uh, true God, uh, is, the true God of Israel is the God of the storm. As uh, she talks about uh, the storm on Mount Sinai. Then she describes the situation in Israel. The people had lost control of the highways because they had chosen new gods. and The Lord had dis uh, disciplined them for it. But God had raised up a mother in Israel, Deborah. And now the people have repented. They had volunteered to destroy the enemy, and this is the occasion for this song, um, which will be repeated again throughout the land of Israel. So verse 2 of the first stanza. The long locks of hair hung loose in Israel, that the people volunteered, bless the Lord. Now that's a literal translation 
I think the reference is to the Nazarite vow, uh, the details of which uh, we'll talk about more when we come to Samson the judge. But normally the text of Scripture does not call special attention to the wartime Nazarite's vow. But here in Judges 5.2, attention is directed to it because of the priestly narrative. Remember that Barak was a uh, Levite and he was involved at, um, from his priestly point of view. Um, and we also see that because of the victory, uh, sanctuary was extended. So there was this priestly uh, concept of sanctuary that was extended throughout the land as a result of that victory. Verse 3a, it says, Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers. 3b, I, to the Lord, I will sing. I will sing praises to the Lord, the God of Israel. 4a, Lord, when thou dost go out from Seir, when thou dost march from the field of Edom. B, 4b, the earth quaked. The heavens also dripped. Even the clouds dripped water. And verse 5, the mountains quaked. Or maybe you have flowed. So there's some concept here that it might have been because of the quaking of the earth there was landslides. Or because of the rainstorm, there may have been floods flowing through the mountain. The mountains quaked and flowed at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. Deborah calls upon the kings of neighboring areas to look, take note of the God of Israel. And he's clearly the superior of all the gods in the neighboring areas. God's public deeds and history should be an occasion for men to think twice. Think twice before you attack Israel, because we have an omnipotent God. Think twice before you attack Christ's church, because we have a powerful God. And since the Baals were supposed to be the lords of the storm, Deborah calls attention to the fact that the true master of the storm is the God Almighty. So the first pair of lines in verse 4 reminds us of the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. As Israel came from Egypt to Sinai, they faced Edom and Mount Seir. As God's glory uh, cloud arose out of Sinai, it appeared to be marching from Edom. In other words, God had marched from the promised land where he had prepared a place for them across Edom, and then he met with them at Sinai where he gave the Ten Commandments. James Jordan, in his commentary on Judges, describes the scene this way. We are standing at the foot of this huge Mount Sinai, but we don't dare touch it, lest we die. We are looking towards the promised land, and a huge black cloud, a storm cloud, is moving rapidly from that land through Edom toward us. And within that cloud is the chariot throne of God, of all creation. And it's guarded by four cherubims with flaming swords. We see that in Ezekiel 1. 
You see these flaming swords as flashings of lightning. The sound gets louder and louder, like the sounds of a vast trumpet announcing the judgment day, until it, we think it's so loud that we'll go deaf. As the cloud reaches Sinai and covers it, it looks like the mountain is erupting like a volcano and is covered with fire. The mountain quakes violently, and then God speaks the Ten Commandments in a voice so loud, so powerful, and so overwhelming that we join with all the people in begging Moses to act as a mediator on our behalf. You get it? He writes, gives us a glimpse of what these words that Deborah is trying to describe here. Verse 4b tells us the great rainstorm that accompanied God's presence at Sinai. The compassion is, <coughs> the comparison is important for God brought a rainstorm to destroy the chariots of the Canaanites. In other words, the same God who made covenant with them at Sinai was the same God who was working with them and covenanting with them on the plains of Megiddo. Verse 4b and 5 remind us of the quaking of the ground at Mount Sinai, which caused the mountains to flow with rock slides or floods. The earth itself trembled when God approaches. Think of that. The earth trembled when God approaches. How do we react when we approach God? We're going to be at uh, the table of remembrance this afternoon. How do we react when we approach God? Or when God approaches us? Deborah repeats the phrase, the Lord, the God of Israel. What other God brings response from the earth or from the sky as he does? She is saying, beware, O kings, your storm god Baal is no match for the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Any thoughts, comments as we close? Sure. I, I think he uses that um, quite often. Uh, we've seen it earlier in some of the other judges and some of the other where they used uh, what was important to them to destroy them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay.
Yeah, sure. Good point. Yeah. Are we a friend of God? All right, let's uh, close in a word of prayer, if you will. Um, Brother Cliff, would you close in prayer, please?